Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. That's moving towards the back of the New Testament, but it's a very singular book there. Uh, And while you're turning there, let me just say, uh, for me, you've already heard it a number of times, but happy Father's Day. And let me give you a list of people that are in my heart that I'm talking to. I'm talking to every dad. I'm talking to every soon-to-be dad. We've got a number of them in our uh, congregation. Uh, Every someday I want to be a dad. Uh, To every veteran dad, also known as granddads or grandpas or papas. And maybe to a few that have been in the game long enough to have transitioned all the titles and now have the title of great granddad. I'm moving towards that. I'm not close, but I'm getting there and I'm excited about that. Regardless of where you fit in that ranking, I I want you to know that uh, I counted a privilege to be able to talk to you specifically today. And I've been carrying some things in my heart uh, as a dad, as a grandpa, um, that I want to be able to share with you as an encouragement uh, to you, uh, for you today. But here's what I also know. I know that when we watch a video like what we just watched, that there's a number of you that kind of look at that and think, well, yeah, that's kind of fun to look at. That's really cool. But to be honest with you, I'm none of those guys. Like, like I don't even know how to pretend that I'm any of those guys at this point. And, and if that's you... There's a reason it's because of the culture you live in has spent a few decades now convincing you that you can never be that guy, that you shouldn't want to be that guy, you shouldn't aspire to be that guy because you're never going to get there. But here's what's honest, uh, what's interesting and what's honest is almost every single one of us, and I'm going to leave a little wiggle room in case you you had a different journey, but almost every single one of us as guys, we grew up and we used to be that guy, at least in our imagination. We would pretend we were those guys all the time. And and I'm going to tell you from a scriptural, biblical standpoint, that was not just coincidence. The reason that we instinctively pretended that we're guys like that is because we're created in the image of this great God who doesn't know what it's like to walk away from a fight, who doesn't know what it's like just to surrender loss. He always rises to the challenge. He always overcomes overwhelmingly. And there's something deep on the inside of our heart that we desire to be the same. We're looking for ways. We're looking for any scrap of affirmation from anybody around us in our life to says that maybe on occasion we might be doing something that looks like we're leaning that direction. But again, we live in a culture that for decades now has been screaming at us, that's not at all who we are or will ever be. Now, I, I want to be really clear too, because this is going to lead right into what we're going to see from the Bible today. When we're talking about dads being heroes and living a heroic life, we're not talking about really what we saw up on the screen. We're not talking about somebody who comes in, you know, at just the right moment, who rides in and does some extraordinary thing and saves the day in an extraordinary way and then gets, you know, back on their horse or back on their motorcycle and rides off into irrelevance until the next time there's a crisis. That's not what a Bible hero is. 
A Bible hero is someone who is present, someone who's engaged on an everyday, all the time basis, someone who on many, many occasions does not have the answers. In fact, when we read in Hebrews chapter 11, the whole chapter is dedicated to Bible heroes, mostly men, some women, but all dedicated to Bible heroes. And when you read it, it's really interesting because in most cases, these individuals are pretty ordinary. In every case, these individuals are inherently flawed. They make huge mistakes. Even in their crowning moment, what they walked away with the trophy and what put their name in the hall of faith in heaven, even those on every occasion weren't because of something heroic they did, is because of something heroic that they allowed the Lord to do through them. And on some of those occasions, even they were shocked. <laughs> like they didn't expect that to happen. And yet God did what was completely unexpectable because these ordinary and very flawed individuals just simply yielded themselves to God and said, I can't pull it off. Something in my heart wants to be heroic, but I can't pull that off on my best day. Even if I could do it one time, it would be a one-time kind of my best shot. It would fall short, and then I would be done after that. And yet these ordinary flawed men surrendered themselves to the Lord. And here's what you find. I'm just going to give you some categories that you can study out in the Bible. You find that God took these ordinary and very flawed individuals and turned them into men of conviction and calling. And when I say that, I'm talking about guys who grew to the place where they made a decision, I'm going to follow God and his plan. I'm not going to chase after money. I'm not going to chase after achievement. I'm not going to chase after accolades. Doesn't mean that those things aren't important to me. Doesn't mean that I don't want a sense of accomplishment. It means that I'm not going to let those things take the priority. I'm going to be the man that God's called me to be because I believe, first of all, God is God. He really is God. There really is a sovereign God. And that he's put a destiny in my life that not only has temporary value, but has more importantly an eternal value, an eternal significance. So I'm gonna put those things first. He also turns individual, flawed, ordinary individuals into men of clarity and confidence. Men that say, above every other practice I have, I put high up on my list a discipline to spend regular time with God and in his word because that's what brings me the confidence I need to face any situation knowing that the God who created it all is on my side and allows me to see what he's doing and what he wants to do and to hear what he's saying with clarity at any point in time. It also turns men of ordinary and flaws into men of character and courage. Men who do the best they can to keep themselves pure in a world that is doing everything it can to stain their lives, to, to create these addictions and these hangups and these secret things that are going on. These men are working and praying and believing God to, to become and to remain pure. These are men that walk in integrity, even though everybody around them seems to be comfortable compromising and yet they will not do it. They seek first and foremost to imitate Christ Jesus, who is our example and who is our savior. And when that happens, this positions them to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit over and over and over again, not depending on just their own strength and their own ingenuity and their own wisdom, but sensing 
This infusion of the divine courage and the divine wisdom and the divine peace of God in any situation. These flawed men who have submitted themselves to the Lord become men of capability and capacity. In other words, they learn how to take God's word and the covenant they have and listen carefully to weaponize that against the enemy, not against other people, but against the obstacles and the enemy and it enables them to face overwhelming odds with a calmness, but with a boldness and a courage that says at all points, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And not only that, they'll add, not only can I do them, I'll do them with excellence. I'll do them in a way that other people take notice and then I can become an encouragement and a witness to them. And lastly, but certain, certainly not least, the inherent flawed men who are submitted to the Lord become men of compassion and care. In other words, while they're demonstrating and they're learning to be men of great strength and great courage and great fortitude, they also grow in their depth and in their wit to become men of great empathy and great sympathy who know how to allow God's mercy and God's love and God's grace to emanate and flow through them to bring comfort and care to those that are around them. So they're not just winning battles, they're winning people. And and this is really what the Bible says. These are the heroes that God intended for every one of us as men to become, to grow up, not just to be real men, but to be men of God, called and empowered Uh, In this specific time in history, we're going to see that in today's text. I I don't think that we we hold on to to the understanding with enough weightiness that we're not just called to be men of integrity and to be men that God can use, but we're called to this specific time frame. You could have been born in any time in history. Some of you probably, you know, see another, another time frame in history. I, I, I wish I would have been born there. I think I would have been better suited there, you know, kind of where I, where I tick. It, you know, I'm an old soul. It kind of moves better there. But the Bible says over and over again, you are where you're at because God wanted you to be right here at this specific time in the middle of the chaos of what's going on in the world because you're one of the heroes that he said, I'm going to put my best team on the field that can move the kingdom forward, that can take those people that are around them and I put under their care and give them the shelter and the guidance they need to weather the storm and to walk right through into God's truth so they can fulfill their destiny. And God said, hmm, which guys should I have for this period in history? And he picked us. I wouldn't have picked me. But he picked us to do this so we're at the right place at the right time so that we can bring, bring victory. Um, I asked him to put a picture of my dad on the screen. And uh, part of the reason I know these things is true is not just because of my study in scripture over a number of years now, but because I was privileged to grow up with a dad who I would consider to be a bona fide Bible hero. Now, everything the Bible says, right? He was a flawed man. He would tell you that. He had a seventh grade education. So in a world that's, that's booming and accelerating with technology and knowledge you know, is, is kind of at a premium, uh, my dad was on the short end of that stick. But it doesn't mean that he was ever caught short not knowing what to do, not being invited into high level conversations because dad understood something about, I don't have the, the, the education, I don't have the intellectual strength, but I've got the wisdom of God if I'll listen. Listen. 
And he did. And there's times I'm telling the company he's worked for, he would save them or make them millions, millions of dollars because of just some little simple suggestion or some thought process that would cut right across the grain of graduate degrees. And dad would say, yeah, but I kind of think we should do it this way. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my goodness, where did that come from? It came from a dad who understood how to live with a passion for the kingdom of God and submitted to the kingdom of God. And even though dad went home to be with the Lord in 2007, at 60 years old, I'm telling you, more and more I'm appreciating the life and the legacy that he left. And I'm chasing some of that. I'm still drawing from what he left me and saying, I'm learning things that, that now I understand why he did that. And I know even though everything I'm telling you right now is kind of a, you know, we're ramping up and we're getting our, our mind, mind right so we can study the Bible. I know that there's still some of you that are saying, yeah, but you don't know the decisions I've made. But you don't really know what's going on behind the scenes in my life. You don't understand. I'm putting on a great front, and right now I'm somehow holding it all together. But man, it is like with duct tape. It feels like it's leaking, and it's crumbling all in the bottom side, and I'm doing everything I can to hold it on. Let me tell you something. God thinks otherwise. God has a really big plan for you, and I'm not just saying that, to somehow ingratiate you during Father's Day. I'm saying we're gonna read in scripture. So I ask you to turn to Titus, but let me read just a few scriptures that will substantiate what we're going to see unfold in Titus so that you could know we're talking to everybody in here, every, every man, ladies, you too, but it's Father's Day. We're talking about every dad in here. Let me tell you, no matter where you're at, listen to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Have you never heard, have you never understood the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth? He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. And we're like, well, praise the Lord for that because I'm not God, but he doesn't stop. He said he gives power to the weak. He gives strength to the powerless. Even the youths, and by the way, it's not talking about the little kids in the, you know, in, in the kids department. He's talking about these, these young bucks who have all of, I mean, just endless energy and all these cutting edge ideas. And they do, by the way, I'm not downplaying that. He said, even the youths become weak and tired and the young men will fall in exhaustion. But listen to this. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. And they will walk and not faint. And just so you don't miss the significance of those descriptions, when it says they will run and not grow weary, he's talking about they will be able to respond to those crises that happens out of nowhere all of a sudden. And you got to jump up and sprint. He said, you'll, you'll have what it takes. You don't need to be worried about that. Elsewhere in the Psalms, it says, we never need to be afraid of sudden fear, of a phone call, of an announcement that comes across the TV screen. We don't have to be afraid of those things because in the moment, those that put their trust in the Lord are gonna find an infusion of strength to help you get up and run to the battle and handle whatever's necessary. But it goes on and says they will walk and not faint. It's referring to a different scenario and this one, something shifts and it's gonna take a while. It might be months, it might be years. You're walking through something and you're like, Lord, just give me the strength for one more day. He will, he will. 
You're going to walk all the way through this. And so Isaiah 40 comes. Let me give you one more in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 26, it says, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of us were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Now, there's nobody in the building that's old enough you can't remember way back when. Maybe God's blessed you and you're doing pretty well now. We praise the Lord for that. But there's nobody in the building that can't remember way back when, when you weren't doing so well and you're just trying to get started. He says, yep, but I want you to know in the world's eyes, God's not looking for somebody who's already a success. God's not looking for somebody who's got all the markings and all the trappings of being a great leader. That's not the way God picks out. Instead, verse 27 says, God chooses things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're really smart. And he chooses things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chooses things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, uh, and uses them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. And as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Now they do. People all the time talk out loud. I mean, God's right there. He's listening. He's everywhere out loud about, let me tell you what I've done, all my self-accomplishments. And the Lord says, yeah, just keep talking. Keep talking. It's all temporary stuff. But he said, I'm looking for someone who realizes that without God, they're desperate. I'm not looking for someone who's got it all together. I'll take anyone who's opened their heart in humility and said, God, I'm desperate for you. I need you to move in and through me. God says, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. It doesn't mean you have to be destitute. Doesn't mean you have to be on the lower end of the scale. You can be way up here. Notice he says, only a few of us. But it, but it doesn't mean that disqualifies you. It just means when you are so confident in your own ability and your own strategy and your own intellect and your own accomplishments, then it's easy for your human side to say, yeah, well, I mean, I kind of need God just in case. <laughs> you don't realize you are desperate for him. Your heart won't keep beating all night long if it wasn't for the fact that the Bible says that Jesus holds everything together by his word and his power. One skip of Jesus's command and it's, you're done. And this is what the Bible says. It's trying to help our dependence. Listen to what Joshua chapter one, this is Joshua talking, or I'm sorry, God talking to Joshua. And he says, this is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so if you're here this morning and you feel like, man, you know, I'm so stressed and I'm so exhausted and, and I just feel like, you know, there's so many things that I'm barely holding together and yet it feels like the circumstances of the world just keep piling on and piling on. I don't know if I can keep going with this. That's just a couple of samples right off the top of the pile in the word of God that says, God got you. You can. But just in case there is somebody who watched the bumper video and thought, all those guys are me. I'm awesome. People just don't know that. In fact, pulling apart your shirt, revealing the giant S, you know, it's like, that's me in real life. Just in case that's you, let me read one to help you stay with us too, lest you start scrolling Facebook because you think, I don't need any of this. Romans chapter 12, verse three says, Paul's talking, because of the privilege and authority God's given to me, I'm giving each of you this warning. Don't think you're better than you really are. But be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. Listen, measuring yourself by the faith God has given 
You're saying, well, I don't know if I can do that. Uh, you got people around you. Ask your wife, ask your kids. They'll help you. They'll sober you up really fast. Yeah, they, they can tell you that there might be a few areas that you might want to let God help you in. But all of that leads us to Titus chapter one. And Titus chapter one, we're just going to grab a handful of scriptures and we're literally just going to let the Bible teach us this morning because it's such a powerful passage where Paul's writing to this young son in the faith named Titus. Now there's nowhere in the New Testament that records that Paul and Titus ever teamed up and went and evangelized this place called Crete. And yet this letter talks about Talks like everybody knows that. And so Paul is now moving to a different part of, of his journey to evangelize another part of the Gentile world, but he leaves Titus in Crete. And he says, I'm gonna write some things to you like a father would write to his son because I need you to turn around and be a father now to the spiritual family of God that we birthed at Crete and I want you to help them. And he's gonna tell us why because we're li they're living in a culture that is a really, really dangerous culture. They're living in a culture that's bookend by two extremes and the bookends are closing in the middle. On one extreme are people that are absolutely unscriptural. They're making stuff up just and saying, you know, I think this is what the Lord's saying and no, not scriptural doesn't even make sense, but they're creating their own doctrine and they're teaching this stuff. And because it's easier to listen to and to understand, people by the droves are leaning in. Then on the other side, there are people who, there are, who see that happening and they're like, no, 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 that's bad, that's bad. So they become very religious and very legalistic and they're trying to draw hard lines and pull everybody over here as if somehow if we get ritualistic and religious, that provides redemption for us and that doesn't work either. And so Paul's realizing this, this tension and the danger of the culture around. So he's writing to Titus and he's saying, listen, I want to help you to understand how in the world can you, first of all, live a godly life? And then how can you turn around and pass that on to the spiritual family that I've left you over? So in Titus chapter one, we're gonna start in verse number one. And this is Paul speaking again. He says, this letter is from Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I've been sent to proclaim faith to those that God has chosen and listen to this line because this line is so important because it sets the theme for the entire rest of the book. He says, uh, I've been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen, but listen to this, and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. Now that literally is the theme of the rest of the letter. If you understand that's what, that's what Paul's trying to do, then you can read the rest of the letter and it almost just unfolds right in front of you. And you're saying, well, why is that so important? I know that's kind of a rhetorical question. We know as Christians that's always important. But he goes on and he says, this truth is especially important, my insert, because it gives them confidence that they have eternal life. Now, that eternal life is, is important that we qualify today because a lot of Christians think eternal life, and that means what's going to happen when we go to heaven. But that's not the Greek term here. The Greek term here is, is, a, is a, dual, dual, uh, a dual definition. The eternal life, first of all, means it unlocks a life that begins to thrive right here and right now. Did you know if you've, if you've accepted Jesus, you're already living eternal life right here. 
You have all of the, the principles, all of the promises, all the covenant, all the mercy, all the grace, all the resource, all the protection of God is at your disposal to what Deuteronomy says, to live life that reflect days of heaven right here on the earth. And you, you're already living eternal life according to the New Testament. It means something happened in your life and you are now brought into the promise and provision of God and you have the ability not to escape all of the downside of, of sin coming into the world. Not like you, you get to live and nothing, you know, and you don't experience anything. The Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust alike. That we're living in a sin-infected world and you're in the world right now, so we're gonna experience a lot of this stuff, but you're not of the world, so you don't have to surrender to it. You don't have to fear, you don't have to panic, you don't have to say, well, that's just how it is. You know, all this stuff's going around. Yep, and in many cases, it's gonna go right around me. Even if I go through it, I'm coming through it. I'm not gonna set up camp in the middle of it, because of what God's done for me. And so eternal life means we start living and thriving right now, even in the middle of all the challenges. But eternal life also means one day we're gonna get to heaven and all of this will accelerate to levels we can't even imagine. And that's not just word, word salad. We really can't. Paul literally says, I don't have a grid or the vocabulary to even tell you the half of it. I'm describing it, but even as I'm talking, I know that's really ambiguous, that's really murky, that's, that's really kind of shadowy, but that's the best I can do. And this is what the Bible tells us we have. He says that we have eternal life, which God, listen, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. And now at just the right time, and again, that's a dual meaning, it means just the right time in God's big story, but just the right time that you're just now hearing it, at just the right time he's revealed this message, which we announced to everyone. So they got this message revealed, oh, I don't know, almost 2,000 years ago. You're getting it this morning. At just the right timing, God knew you were gonna be here. He knew we were gonna open this passage. And at just the right moment, God is selecting for us to understand this this morning. It's by God's command, uh, it's by the command of God our Savior that I have been entrusted with this work uh, for him. So having set this eternal context, now we're gonna keep going to verse number four and you're gonna see that Paul shifts it now to this very fatherly tone. And so he goes on in verse number four and he says, I'm writing this to Titus, my true son in the faith that we share. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior give you grace and peace. I left you on the island of Crete so you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town I instructed you. So from this point on, Paul's going to start giving the qualifications or the characteristics of this spiritual leadership role that Many of us, maybe all of us know as elders. It's called something different in depending on what church background or denomination, but they're elders. But for now, I want us to kind of leave that and let's go to verse 10 and let's find out a little more about why it was so important that he's writing to, to Titus as a son in the faith and why one, one of the things he's asking him to do is to establish elders. So verse number 10, he says, for or because there are many rebellious people. And the word rebellious there are, not, are, are talking about individuals who have already made up their mind not to conform to the standards of the word of God. 
They've already decided that the Bible is nothing more than hate speech. The Bible is nothing more than this limited talk that is from traditional values. And if we're going to be progressive, we need to throw all those things off so we can really understand and embrace what our truth is for our true self into the, next, into the future. I'm using intentional buzzwords in case you're not picking those up. But this is exactly what was going on. In fact, he says they engage in useless talk. And this particular word is describing ideas or concepts or conversations that lead to beliefs that are not just unscriptural, they're illogical. They're irrational. They're, they have no applicable truth, whether secular or sacred, in them. And it says these are rebellious people who have already made a decision. It doesn't have to make sense. It's my truth. And they're, they're pushing into this so hard, but not only that, go on and it says, and they're deceiving others. Now we read about that in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says there's this drift that's happening and because people don't really want to understand sound belief and, and rational, you know, scripture, they would rather hear funny, inspirational, great stories that many of those people are being, are lived or drifting. They're being led to a different gospel. It's the same thing Paul was saying here. It goes on and says, this is especially true of those who insist on circumcision for salvation. Again, these are the Jewish religious leaders that are trying to grab these Gentiles and now drag them back into this ritualistic behavior as if somehow that's what's going to get them redeemed and it didn't work before, it's not gonna work now. He goes on and he says, they must be silenced because they're turning whole families away from the truth by their false teaching, and they do it only for money. Uh, it actually means they do it for a dishonest, disreputable gain. It's usually involving a monetary value, but it's just as much about the influence. It's just as much about the following that they have and what that gives them in the society that, that, that's around them. Verse 12, even one of their own men, a prophet from Crete, has said about them, the people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. And you would think, wow, Paul, you could have kind of you know, mediated that a little bit, balanced it out a little bit, right? But it says, he says, that's all true, by the way. Wow, just say what you mean, Paul. Don't beat around the bush. He just jumps right in and he says, so reprimand them sternly to make them strong in the faith. They must stop listening to Jewish myths and the commands of people who have turned away from the truth. Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure. Now let's qualify. He means when people's hearts are pure, they understand things that are pure and there's no question mark. There's no ambiguity there. They understand what's right and wrong. They, they can see that. But everything, but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving. Ironically, people that are corrupt in their heart and not embracing the word of God and his sovereign authority, they think things are pure that are obviously not. And so the, the whole scales just gets very convoluted. He goes on, he says, uh, because their minds and their conscience are corrupt, such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. Jesus talked about this often. He said, you'll know every tree by its fruit. So in other words, one, on one hand, we can say, well, you know it's an apple tree because there's apples on it. You know it's an orange tree because there's orange on it. But that's not the end of the measurement. You'll know whether it's a good apple tree when you pluck one of those apples 
and you take a bite of it and you're like, that is, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great apple. Or you pluck one of those apples and they are sour or they have worms infested them or, or they're dry and, and they're, they're, there's no juice in them. They're, there's no life-giving nutrient in them. See, it's not just how the tree looks. It's what's really going on with the tree. And Jesus said, you'll be able, uh, able to understand this. Not everybody who says I'm a Christian, not everybody who says I know the Lord is really serving the Lord. Now, I, I'm, I, I'm not the one who gets to question, nor would I ever question, whether or not they're going to heaven. That's between them and the Lord. If they've confessed the Lord Jesus Christ, then at least on the surface, they've, they've seemed to have met the criteria. However, Romans chapter 9 says that you have to confess him as your Lord, not as your Savior. And a lot of people confess him as your Savior. I know you died on the cross for my sins, and I want all my sins forgiven because I want to spend eternity in heaven done. That's not what he asked you. Confess him as your Lord implies that he's your savior, but now that he's in charge of your whole life and you're learning to submit and to allow your life to come under his instruction and under his formation. And so it goes on, he says, such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. They, and this is Paul. Paul okay? Paul's very straightforward. He says they're detestable and disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. Well, obviously he's not measuring on the outside because people can do, you know, humanitarian things and charitable things and things that will help, you know, the, the culture and help the community. Those are wonderful things. But Jesus talked about those people on the backside of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, yeah, but there's going to come a time where I'm going to separate the two crowds, one on my right and one on my left. And on the ones on my left, I'm going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And they're going to be like, what are you talking about? Look at all the wonderful things we did through the church. Look at all the wonderful things we did because we were Christians. He's like, yeah, you may have called yourself that, but I didn't know you. Because it's not about just what we do. Right? It's about what's coming through us and what's happening. And so this is a challenging environment that Paul, this is why Paul's saying, I've got to talk to you like a father who's trying to talk and coach his son so that you can turn around and you can be a father to help these other people. And by the way, I want you to, to appoint other elders, aka fathers, spiritual fathers, because the family needs this guidance and, and, and instruction and protection and provision, especially when we're living in such a challenging culture and it's squeezing into the middle. And listen, I, 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 I don't think I need to go you know, in, into that any deeper for you to see the direct parallel we're living in today. Even secular people all over the place, some of them who started out in, in, on the progressive side, in the liberal side, now they're moving back towards the middle and say, ah, we're going too far. That's not what we even intended. That's not what we wanted because it, we, we're losing potential generations here and this is exactly what Paul was saying. So again, what did the Holy Spirit instruct to do? Because this is not written from a defeatist position. It's not Paul saying, you know what, that's it. We, we should have caught it 10 years ago. We should have caught it 20 years ago. It's too late now. Paul's not writing from that. He's writing from a strong, victorious posture. And Paul's saying, no, 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 it's not too late. And here's what he says in verse one, just to remind you. He says, we need to proclaim the faith to, to those God has chosen, and we need to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. Because otherwise, they won't know. 
You're not gonna get it just by living in the culture. You're not gonna get it just by hanging around with you know, good, moral, so to speak, people. You're not gonna get this. He says, we've got to take them into the word of God and introduce them to a relationship with the Lord Jesus so the Holy Spirit can begin to shape and, and, and form them from the inside out. Otherwise, they're not ever going to get this. And this is weighty, dangerous stuff. The more dangerous the culture gets, this becomes much weightier. It's not just an eternal thing anymore. Now it's a thing that will affect our everyday lives. And so he's trying to get, and then he adds in verse number five, he says, and we have to appoint elders that will help to complete the work. Other translations say, will help to continue to develop the instructions and the message that we're first introducing. So he said, we've got to have the, these elders. Now, well, the word elder is the word presbuteros in the Greek, and it's used a number of times in a variety of settings all the way through the New Testament. Uh, everything from we would consider an elder to at times it, it, it's identified as a bishop. Uh, at times it can, can show up as one of the pastors and all of these things qualify. But it's really a term of rank, of spiritual rank. Whenever someone's called an elder, it's, it's highlighting an advanced uh, an advanced station in age usually, but certainly in wisdom and experience. And the New Testament uses this 66 times. And again, it's always designated in some spiritual leadership role in the local church, which might, you know, for some of you that are deep thinkers, you might want to think right now, then why are we studying this for Father's Day? Well, I've seen the two together for several reasons, but let me give you some legit reasons before we finish up the teaching. Number one, we can, we, can, we can seem elders and fathers together because Paul, who by the way is, is himself an elder, he set the context early in verse one when he said, I'm writing as a father would write to a son. And then he begins to write demonstrating to him how he understands his calling and assignment to be where Titus is concerned, but then coaching and instructing Titus on how he's to turn around and disciple or to shape those that are under his care. N number two, uh, while we're not going to in any way try to dilute the fact that Titus is talking specifically about this, this local church, the spiritual leader uh, that we called an elder, uh, it would not take much at all to make a biblical case for why every father is in fact the elder over his own spiritual congregation, his family. This is an assignment of God. In fact, you, you can see it all over the Bible. Uh, write down, we don't have time to go there, but in Titus chapter two, verses six through eight, it almost just jumps off the page that he's equating the two and helping us to understand that uh, in that respect. But here's number three, and I think this is probably just the, the easiest one for us to grab. In the list we're about to read, I, I'm gonna tell you ahead of time and you challenge me as we go through and tell me if I'm wrong. On the list, list we're about to leave, there is not one thing on this list of nine characteristics that any dad or mom in the room would say, nah, I'll pass on that. Yeah, I don't really... I don't really want to demonstrate that. And by the way, I definitely don't want my kids to demonstrate that. You don't have to be a super spiritual person to look at this list and say, yeah, if I want them to be successful, even in just the experiential part of life, they need every single one of those things. 
They're going to need to be able to understand how do we keep the compass clear and keep the, you know, the, 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 the driving straight when the world and the winds are just trying to pull you everywhere. How do we respond to that? And so, uh, so that's important. Uh, and let me give you two other quick things because I'm going to set you up. And then when we go through the list, it's going to be just super quick. They almost, they almost explain themselves. But there's two things that I want you to keep in mind, dads, as we read this list. First of all, I want you to notice that as we read this list, God-given list, Paul the apostle passes it on to his son in the faith and says, I want you to pass it on to the other spiritual fathers to pass on to their sons and daughters in the faith. You're not going to see one thing on this list that, that involves anywhere close to some super spiritual endowment. You won't find it anywhere. Now, we would think if you're talking about an elder or a pastor, right, they got to be like spiritual giants. But these people have to, I mean, they have to be in the gifts and they have to have the power of God. I mean, you may not always be able to see the lightning from their fingers, but, but that's got to be what's happening because these are the top echelon. These are the ones that Paul says, I want you guys coaching and shaping everybody else. But I want you to notice very intentionally, none of these things are going to jump out like that. In fact, when you look at the list as a whole, it's pretty unimpressive. You're like, really, that's it? Just that? But, but let me tell you why, because that, that's a precedent in the New Testament that we lose sight of, but we have to hold on to it tightly. And that is that we're not trying to do things in our own strength, that somehow we've developed ourselves and we're so sharp and we're so cutting edge that everybody wants us in their meeting and everybody wants to come to us for advice. That's not whatever the Bible says. In fact, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter four. He says, but we have this treasure in an earthen vessel so that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. In other words, we've got this divine, substantive treasure, this infusion on the inside, but on the outside, it looks like we're just a paper bag. I mean, it's just plain wrap packaging. Nothing sparkly, nothing impressive. In fact, when you see sparkly, impressive stuff, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But what I'm saying is before you just jump, you know, whole hog into it, you need to make sure that the inside, because the inside's what's important. And, and then verse eight, he, he helps us to understand why. Paul gives a little bit of, of their journey. He says, we're hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Why? I mean, circumstances were bearing down. When you read the list of things he's gone through, he's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned to death several times. He's been beaten merciless by a, by a mob and left for dead over and over and over again. He's been attacked by wild animals. I mean, this is crazy stuff that you're reading about him. But he says, yeah, we're hard pressed on every side, but something on the inside keeps rising up. He says, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, confused, but we're not in despair. Yeah, I have no idea what I'm gonna do, but uh, the Lord's gonna help me. I'll figure it out. He says, we're persecuted, but not forsaken. He says, we were struck down, but not destroyed. I love how one translation says, we, 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 uh, we were struck down, but we didn't strike out. We're still up to bat. We'll just keep on swinging. And then he says this really interesting, always caring about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. And I remember reading that years and years ago thinking, what in the world does that mean? It sounds so spiritual. 
It sounds like that just means, you know, I'm kind of glowing. You know, I've got to get to the place where sometimes my feet aren't all the way on the floor because I'm just floating through life. I'm so, so spiritual. But that's not at all what he's saying. It, other translations say something closer to, even though we can feel the pains of death in our body, that we are getting older and more frail and we're dying little by little, just like Jesus really died. We're also experiencing something else from the inside out and we could tell that, that the power and the life of God is getting bigger and brighter and becoming more and more obvious, mostly because our own pride and our own humanness is not getting in the way. I remember having these conversations with my own dad. He initiated them. And I remember one time we were sitting in his living room. I don't remember what we're talking about, but out of the blue, he said, you know what? It's just the strangest thing to get old. He said, on the inside, he said, I've continued to grow. He said, I'm smarter today than I've ever been. He said, I understand more about life at a deeper level than I ever have. He said, I know how to do things even in the areas of skill that I had early on that made us a living. I understand more about that area now than I ever did before. But at the same time, in many of those places, my physical body says, we're not doing that anymore. He said, it's so weird to get bigger on the inside and recognize you're getting smaller on the outside. And I remember watching him. You know, here was this guy that I just thought, I, I, I thought there's nothing that could ever defeat him. I grew up and he was a big, strong dad. And I mean, he would just take charge. And I, I watched him, you know, grab things and lift things. He was, he was a barrel-chested, real strong kind of a guy. And then I watched him over the years get smaller and more frail and weaker. And our conversations changed and he didn't have that, you know, that snap. He didn't have that authority in his voice anymore. He was talking much more vulnerably and I watched him and yet at the same time I could hear things coming out of him that were stronger and more wise than I'd ever heard before. I will not tell you whether or not I'm starting to experience that at 60 years old. But I am. I understand some things now. I'm not 20 anymore. I'm not 30 anymore. And on many, many occasions, I thank God that I'm not. I wouldn't trade that, that, that youthfulness. I wouldn't trade that energy and strength because lots of times, man, I leaked it everywhere thinking I was really accomplishing stuff and I'm just, I'm just kicking up dust. But I do understand what this says, that as we grow in the Lord, I can understand more and more the aches and the pains and the frailty of a body on the outside that's dying day by day. And at the same time, I can experience the wisdom and the strength and the courage and the joy of the Lord that's getting bigger and bigger day by day. And that's the anomaly that Paul talks about. He says, this is real. This is exactly what we're experiencing. Here's the second thing, and it'll comfort some of you guys here. The list we're about to read is not really a measurement of the man. It's a measurement of the individual's submission to the Lord and what the Lord's doing through the man. And the older the man gets, he will tell you out of his own mouth, no, that, that's only the Lord. And you probably think he's just trying to be super spiritual. But at some point, super spiritual becomes super honest. No, no, I'm, I'm serious, man. That, that's all God because I don't have it in me to do that anymore. 
I can't rise to the battle on the occasion like I used to. It's only the Lord that's rising up in me that gets me out of bed or gets me across the floor and says, okay, this is what we're going to do. And I know when I'm saying that, that's all you, God. That's all you, because in and of myself, I just turn around and pull the shades and go back to bed. I can't do this. But it's not a measurement. And this is what John 15 meant when Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and you let me remain in you, there's that symbiotic relationship. He says, then you will produce a lot of fruit. In fact, I, I've looked them up. You know, uh, I love this. The more scriptures that I find of the blessing and the expanded fruitfulness in your old age, you don't stop. You may, not, you may not experience as much fruit, but your fruit is bigger and sweeter and more perfected than it's ever been before. This is promises in the word of God. But then he goes on and he says, if, you, if I stay in you and you stay in me, you'll produce much fruit, a lot of fruit. But then he goes on and he says, but apart from me, you can't do anything. Even though we think we can, because on the outside, we're still keeping the plate spinning. But on the inside, the older we get, the more time goes on, all of a sudden we begin to realize we put emphasis on stuff that really doesn't matter. We can feel ourselves getting weaker on the inside and we know, I, I, I don't know how much longer I can keep this going. But the Bible says, listen to me, God's got a different plan. In fact, the fruit he's talking about, again, it's not just what you do, it's how you're doing it and the quality, the sweetness, the, the longevity, the legacy of what you're going to leave behind as people continue to be nurtured from what you produced. That's what the Bible's talking about. And we won't turn there, but Galatians chapter five, starting in verse 22, it talks about this is the, the kind of fruit that's only produced by the work of the Holy Spirit in you. You, you can't manufacture it. You can act like it, you can perform, you can try to behave because you know it's right and you wanna do that, but, but in, in very short spurts and intervals, you realize, yeah, I can't keep doing that. I don't have the patience. I don't have the graciousness for that. No, I'm, I'm just I'm so tense right now. And, but the fruit of the spirit just keeps you moving forward like that. All right, let's get into the list and you'll see this won't take me maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 minutes tops. Titus chapter one, verse six, here's the list. He says, an elder, so we're gonna say a dad, must live a blameless life. Now listen, not perfect, not perfect, but one that reflects a constant effort towards integrity and towards the things that God tells us we, we should be focusing on. Number two, he goes on, he says, he must be faithful to one wife, uh, to his wife, I'm sorry. One translation says a husband of one wife. Another translation that's a little looser but a little more fun says a one woman man. And here's what it's not doing. It's not disqualifying somebody who's maybe been married before. That's not what it's doing at all. It's, it's verifying and validating complete fidelity between you and your wife. Listen, not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, and in your spirit. There's a complete and whole commitment. You have eyes and heart and emotions and prayer only for that individual first and foremost. You're not all over the place. And this is really, really important, especially in the culture we live in today. Number three, his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. Again, it's not a disqualification. Number one, for people whose adult children have left the house and walked away from the Lord. This is, this is not disqualifying you. 
nor is it talking about people that are, or parents or dads that are walking through a challenging season with one of their kids that still live in the home. That's just part of the journey. That's part of, of life. So it's not disqualifying that. It's talking about a dad who is intentional to, like Proverbs 22 says, to raise up a child in the ways of the Lord through biblical wisdom and instruction. This is not a dad who surrendered to the culture. Well, you know how teenagers are. I don't know. This is a dad who, when things get tough, he graciously leans in and says, Lord, give me wisdom, but we're, we're going to stay involved and we're going to help get them through this. My mom was a West Texas gal, and she had this uh, phrase that she used to encourage me and my brothers with all of our kids. Uh, they'd get out of high school and she'd say, well, praise the Lord. They're one step closer. Now you just got to get them over Fool's Ridge. And Fool's Ridge is when they start thinking they know everything, but you know they don't. And you've got to help them climb a little higher until they get on a balanced level. And then they begin to recognize, oh, that's how life works. That's Fool's Ridge. And mom would talk to us about stay with them, stay with them, stay with them just because they're 18. Don't let them just walk away and make their own decisions. You pray for them. You watch them. You stay with them. You stay engaged. You stay involved. Don't be intrusive, but you stay involved because that's your job as a dad. And thank God that she, that she helped us with that. Verse number seven and number four says, he must be a manager of God's household. Notice this, so he must live a blameless life. Now it's the second time he said this and it doesn't mean that he has to live a perfect life, but Ephesians chapter six expands us a little bit and it says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger by the way that you treat them. Rather, bring them up, notice, with the discipline and the instruction that comes from God. So again, not perfection, but he's talking about, Dad, you have to work. You, you have to be connected with mom, and you have to work to pursue a peaceful and a productive family rhythm while not compromising your commitment to the teaching and the training of God's word. There has to be kind of a balance there in how you do things. You can't come hot and heavy, and, and you can't be haphazard. It can't be this, do what I say, not what I do. That's frustrating. But if, you're, if you believe this and you're teaching them, they ought to be able to watch your life and say, dad's doing it, not perfectly, but to the best of his ability. Number five in verse seven, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, a heavy drinker, violent or dishonest with money. That's five of them all collected together, but it all indicates the same things, that dad should not have a bondage to unhealthy patterns. He shouldn't have an addiction. Let me say it differently. He shouldn't surrender to one. If you find yourself, the world has a way of, of creeping in and rooting itself. And if you find yourself in one of those, you ought to be able to acknowledge it and say, we're going to break that thing. And I, let me tell you one reason why, because the Old Testament tells us you can pass generational patterns and addiction onto the next generation. I'm just not making that up. Counselors will tell you that. <clears throat> People that, you know, their father was an alcoholic, that'll never happen to me. And it does. It's because there's a spiritual root system there. And so he says that these dads can't, be, can't have any bondage or addiction, but instead they have to maintain control over their own emotions and their appetites. Here's number six in verse eight. It says, rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home. Now, for an introvert like me, I panic when I read that. But he's not talking about that I have to open a bed and breakfast and just be around people all the time. He's talking about I have to develop something on the inside that makes me approachable, 
That makes me gracious. That makes me kind. So that when people come around me, they feel right at home, especially people that I don't know very well. They have to be able to come and say, you know, I, I, just, I just feel like you're, you're, you're approachable. And, and, and I think we all need to work on that. It's contradictory to some definitions of what a powerful, you know, successful person is because they're the ones that are unapproachable. Oh, no, you can't go talk to that guy. No, yeah, we, we stay away from him. That's not what the Bible says. It says you're supposed to be very approachable, very hospitable. Number seven is in verse eight, and he must love what is good. That's not talking about he just must do good things or do the right things. It means he's got to have this bent towards wanting things to be good. Always, if, if it's good, then he wants them to be better. And if it's better, he wants them to be best. And I don't mean on some scale of achievement and accomplishment. I mean on a scale that measures the goodness and the purity and the integrity of the way God designed it to be. We're always growing, always working. Verse number eight, it says he must live wisely and just. And again, this is talking about not being influenced by the culture, but instead he's got this diligent pursuit of doing the right thing so that people are treated fairly and justly in every scenario. And finally in verse number eight, and we'll combine it with verse nine to see our last one. He must live a devoted and disciplined life having strong beliefs in the trustworthy message that he was taught. Now we can see exactly what this means when we read in Romans chapter one, verse 16. Paul makes this, this I mean, just this confident statement. I can almost see him, you know, standing behind a podium if he was and kind of, you know, puffing his chest out a little bit, leaning in a little bit so people really knew when he says this, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's why because I understand it is the power of God to salvation, not for everyone, but for everyone who believes. He goes on and he says, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And he says, let me tell you why. Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Listen to this, from faith to faith. In other words, we're growing. No matter where you're at today, you should be farther along in a month, in six months, in a year. So what I watched in my dad, where he was unrefined and a little bit you know, brash and rough around the edges, but he was strong and virtual, I'll just take charge of this, that flipped over the years. And over the years, he, didn't, he just didn't have the physical capacity to be able to wrangle things down like he did. But boy, did he have the wisdom. Boy, did he have, have the, the internal strength. That man could pray through a situation and watch God turn it around. I mean, we always ran to him. Hey, Dad, I need you to pray with me about something. And he did. It just flipped on him. And you got to see that's exactly what the Lord was saying. And it goes on and says, and this is important because it is written, the just shall live by their faith. Not by their bank accounts, not by their accomplishments. Don't hear me say that those things are bad. I think those things are part of the blessing of the Lord, potentially. As long as God takes priority, as long as we're doing it all as a reflection of God's blessing on our life and to help those that are under us move forward. And it finishes in verse nine, it says then, and here's what it means, is a summarization. As all of those lists, begin to grow in a man's heart. He'll be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and he'll be able to show. That word literally means he'll demonstrate with his life. He doesn't have to say a word. People will just watch him and say, you know, there's something about that guy. 
There's something about him. Whenever I get in a crisis, I just want to go talk to him. There's something about him. Whenever I'm around him, I, I just feel like he, the, he pulls me in. He's, he's really approachable. And all those things are the fruit of the spirit growing in our life. It says that he's able to teach and to show those who oppose it where they're wrong. Doesn't mean they'll agree with him, but it means they can't argue with, with the fruit. They can't argue with the demonstration. You say, well, that all sounds great. But I got to be honest with you, I'm, I'm on the low end of the scale. I'm exhausted. I'm confused. I'm, I'm afraid, to be honest with you. And, and then all that, I still have a job. Can I just say this lovingly to you dads? That is your job. That's your number one job. And here's why. Because when you do what the Bible says here, the Bible says that everything else begins to flow. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all those other things will just begin to flow out. But we work so hard. I know because I've come through the kind of the seasons of maturity and we work so hard to do all the right things. And sometimes at the expense of the thing, the Bible says, if we'll seek first the kingdom of God, all these things begin to flow. And we'll just watch with amazement. How in the world can life be getting better when I'm less stressed and I'm working, you know, not quite as hard or at least not as frantically and and I'm not worried I'm taking more time to balance my rhythms and I'm spending more time with my wife and more time with my, how can all of these things just be getting better because it wasn't you in the first place. It's the power of God working through you. Again, it's a very unimpressive list. But thank God for it because every single one of us, no matter where we're at, can buy into this list and we can watch the fruit of the Spirit and the power of God begin to work through us and everything out here just begins to go up and we're actually working less. We're actually stressing less and yet God's doing what he said. This is our job. Can I have every, now let me give you the list again if I can remember it. Every dad, every soon-to-be dad, every someday I'll be a dad, Every granddad, and if you're here and you're a great granddad, can I have every one of you to stand up? That should almost complete the list. <clears throat> yeah. We, we don't often see ourselves this way, but I want to tell you this morning, I'm going to pray for you. Then we're going to worship and close like we normally do. And then we're going to go have some treats and talk about our favorite movie if we want to. But, but let me share this with you. I almost came up here during worship and I didn't because I I thought, Lord, I don't know if I just don't know if I have enough energy to do that or if I'm really hearing you clear, I didn't want to subvert what we're about to learn, but it fits here and I'll retroactively. When we were in worship this morning, it's like like the, the presence of God was hanging over us like this bulging water balloon, right? And I wanted to come up here and say, hey, let me ask the question. Um, how many of you in here uh, need something from the Lord? Let me give you a short list. Physically, emotionally, relationally, financially, wisdom. You need something that, boy, if the Lord just could give you, just give you that edge this morning, give you that little infusion, life would just come up, take a whole lot of pressure off you. Uh, how, many, how many of you? And I bet you that uh, maybe half, maybe the majority of you would have raised your hand. But then I would ask how many of you, maybe that's not you, but how many of you know somebody who needs that? Especially if they're your own family. What about one of your kids? What about your spouse going through a challenging time? I bet you everybody would have raised their hand if we'd ask enough questions. Here's the reason I'm saying that. Because when we come together in the house of God, God's saying, I'm giving you the answer. I'm giving you opportunity. 
to come into a house of prayer and define agreement in prayer and say, this is beyond me. I don't know how to fix it. If I would, I would have already done it. But Lord, how can I come and now allow somebody to get in agreement with me? And the Bible promises when that happens, God will authenticate his word and will begin to move in that divine power through my life. Can I just ask a question? What man, what courageous man in his right mind when the answer is right there, wouldn't walk up and say, I need that. Maybe I don't, but my kid sure does. But my wife sure does. But my, my brother, my sister, who's not serving the Lord, they sure need that. And, and I don't want to hear anybody, I don't, I don't want anybody to hear me correcting. That's not what I'm doing or chastising. I'm challenging and encouraging. Listen, when we get a spiritual family full of men that are not afraid to step up and lead the way, not afraid to grab their wife's hand and say, come on, we're going up this morning. Or hey, hold a seat right here. I got to go up there because I'm wrestling with something. And God, the answer is right there like a vending machine in front of me. And all I got to do is walk up and God will begin to give me the things that I need. And yet I sit here in my chair. That's not leadership, men. We have to be men that will step out. And my challenge and my encouragement to you is that the courage of God, the wisdom of God will begin to open your eyes and you begin to see the answer is right there in front of you and your family's waiting for you to lead. Take the first step. It won't be perfect. It might be clumsy, but take the first step and watch what happens. It creates a vacuum and God begins to pull everything in that direction. Listen to me, men, you're heroes according to the Bible. As long as we have the power of God moving through us, God wants to do great exploits and heroic things in all of us to start with rescuing our family from a, from a chaotic culture, from extending the, our, our livelihood and our businesses and leaving legacies long after we're gone. That's what I'm gonna pray for you today. It's not gonna be some Lord bless them and encourage them. Well, it will be some of that. But I wanna declare over you and I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit, open your eyes, open your heart and to infuse you with the power of God and to remind you who he's called you to be. Bow your head and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, we stand in front of you as men. We're vulnerable to you, Lord. We're not living in a culture that helps us or encourages us. In fact, we're living in a culture that seems like it's more confusing by the day. And yet the word of God never changes. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Lord, we're more than conquerors because we, we serve Christ Jesus and he works in us. And so I declare over these men in the name of Jesus that any hurt, that any, any fatigue, any emotional drain, anything that's hindering or stopping them from being what you've called them to be, that all of that would evaporate right now as the voice of the Holy Spirit penetrates. In the name of Jesus, be free and be courageous and be who you're called to be. No weapon formed against you will prosper from this point in time. And every word that's been spoken, even by your own mouth, all of those words that are contrary to who God's called you to be, they're going to drop to the ground and you're going to begin to, to have thoughts. You're going to begin to recognize. You're going to begin to wake up in the middle of the night. And God's saying, I've got something more. I've got something bigger. You haven't made mistakes big enough. I'm going to restore. I'm going to put this online in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I call the men in our congregation to step forward as the spiritual leaders in their home. If that just means take that first step, just be courageous enough to move the dial one step forward, then Lord, I call them forth in Jesus' name. I thank you that today you would bless them. Open their eyes to all the things they have accomplished. 
open to all their eyes to all the blessings and the benefits that they have that many, many, many men dream about. And yet here they are, Lord, fat and rich with the blessings of the Lord because of what you've done and what you promised them. We speak blessing to them. We call them heroes in the faith. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you come and help us to be everything you've called us to be in Jesus' name. And all the men said together. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.